Hello, and welcome to Modus Scotus, the podcast about the Supreme Court of the United States. My name is Venetia Herdebees. And I'm Bill Kehoe. And today we are going to be covering two recent cases, Thompson v. Clark and U.S. versus Sarnayev. But before we start, Bill, do you have any news for us? Nope. <laughs> Actually. So do you remember, Venetia, when Biden, there was a lot of pressure around the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're like, hey, this, this system of nominating Supreme Court justices is broken, blah, 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 blah. So Biden put in um, a committee. He established a committee to go look at things. Like, what should we change? What should we not change? All that stuff. Mm-hmm. You remember that? Yes. Everybody was thinking, oh, they're going to increase the size of the Supreme Court, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. So while the committee didn't make any recommendations per se, they made uh, findings on recommendations. Okay. So they f- made findings on the increasing the number of justices on the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. but they pretty much found that no matter what you do there, it's going to be politically charged and might actually uh, degrade the Americans and foreign foreign governments' respect, faith, yeah. and respect in the Supreme Court. So mm-hmm. they're they're basically thinking nothing's going to happen with the size of the Supreme Court. But what they're thinking of is a change to the nomination and hearing process. Oh, well, that's good. Okay, right. So this is so um, this is you know started with you know. RBG was like a 90-something, 90 90, over 90% of the senators voted for her. Mm-hmm. But as time has gone on, it's become more polarized. It's been closer to 50-50, right? Yep. And they're like, hey, that's not so great. So what are we going to do to change that? And a lot of it's the nominate in, you know, Merrick Garland never got a hearing, mm-hmm. all that stuff. But then all of a sudden, Amy Coney Barrett got a hearing. Mm-hmm. And it was like at the both were at the end of a presidential term. Mm-hmm. So the recommendation, and look, you think that... One is right, one is wrong. I disagree with you, but that's fine. Um, but here's the new changes that they're proposing. That um, no matter what, a hearing would happen between 30 and 50 days after a nomination. No matter what. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, well, actually, that's not necessarily true. They're just they're sending standards to the timing. Uh, between 30 and 50 days, you'd have a, a hearing between 30 and 50 days. Mm-hmm. You'd have a committee vote 10 to 21 days after the hearing. And then a, a floor vote soon after. Yeah. Uh, the only exception is if the nomination occurs after August 1st of a presidential election year. And in that case, all bets are off. Nothing's guaranteed. But it's still possible? Why don't they just set like a clear, bright line rule of after August... Like, no, you, you can't because nominate. There, you should be able to because let's say that in this, like, let's say in your hypothetical mm-hmm. that, um, let's say the president and the Senate, the president and the Senate mm-hmm. are of the same party. It's an election year. And there's a bunch of cases that need a ninth justice. They want a full Supreme Court for the October term. Why shouldn't they nominate someone? Because we don't know if the general populace actually approves of either the general populace has very little to say about the supreme court they have something to say about the person who nominates the supreme court yeah which shouldn't just be part of the policy that whoever the people vote for should be able to vote 
in or nominate, I'm sorry, nominate their justice? Yeah, the people voted for someone four years ago and their term is for four years. And for the four years, you get the power to nominate. But we have cases to cover tonight. We do. All right. So our first case is going to be Thompson versus Clark. And this is going to be a lot less exciting than the news. <laughs> All right. So our first case is sort of mostly criminal law. So I'll give you the facts. Uh, Larry Thompson was living at a home with his family and his sister, or his wife's sister was in town and she noticed that the infant, Thompson's infant, had a diaper rash and she mistook that diaper rash for signs of abuse. She called 911, she reported an emergency that there could be abuse happening at the home and the EMT showed up and they were like, nah, it's fine. And then the police showed up and Thompson at this point was very aggravated and uh, would not let them see the child. The officers tried to come in anyway. Thompson asked if they had a warrant, which they did not. Nevertheless, the officers physically tried to enter Thompson's house. And when Thompson blocked the doorway, the officers tackled him and handcuffed him, took him to jail. So he spent two days in jail and he was charged with resisting arrest and obstructing governmental administration because obviously at that point, child services had been informed. Uh, He... Uh, later disputed all of these charges. The prosecution dropped the charges against him, stating that the people were dismissing the case in the interest of justice, which commonly happens with prosecutorial um, review of cases like this. And then Thompson, who was very upset about the whole encounter, filed a Section 1983 malicious prosecution claim against the police officers who were involved, The federal district court granted judgment as a matter of law in favor of the defendants, the police officers, and then the appellate court affirmed. So after he was granted cert to the U.S. Supreme Court, the question before the court is, must a plaintiff who seeks to bring a Section 1983 action alleging unreasonable seizure pursuant to legal process show that the criminal proceeding against him, quote, formally ended in a manner not inconsistent with his innocence, end quote, or that the proceeding, quote, ended in a manner that affirmatively indicates his innocence, end quote. So what's the answer? Nobody knows. Well, we should start off by defining what a 1983 claim is. That's your job, Bill. Well, oh, good. So a 1983 claim... Uh, it's a federal. It's part of the Civil Rights Act, mm. and it basically says that um, you can sue the government. You can sue the government for civil rights violations done under the color of government action. So basically, the government does something to uh, impede your rights, but they're doing it as part of their. You know, they're pretending like not not pretending, but they're doing it as a state actor. Then they're you know. Uh, then you can sue the government for damages under that claim. And that's what Thompson is doing here. It's like, hey, you, the police officers entered my home under the color of law, meaning that they were acting as police officers when they entered my home. Uh, they violated my rights. They violated my rights of, um, uh, you know, search and seizure. Mm-hmm. Fourth Amendment. Fourth Amendment. 
therefore I can sue them. So the elements of a 1983 case is first you have to uh, show that the uh, they were acting under the color of state law and that the conduct deprived that plaintiff, that person, uh, of the rights, privileges, or immunities guaranteed under either federal law or the Constitution. So in this case, it's the Fourth Amendment. Hey, you violated the first Fourth Amendment. I get to sue you because you were acting as a police officer when you entered my home and violated my rights. But he was also arguing, Thompson, the seizure aspect of having to be involved with the system at all, essentially, was first being seized by the police officers was his initial claim, but then being pulled into the prosecutorial system at all was a, quote, seizure, and yeah. he was disputing that as well. Yeah, so he's saying I was there, was a, there were at least two... Seizures. Fourth Amendment violations. Right. Not everybody's on board that there were actually two, but the main one that I think we all kind of, not we all, but I think the, the, the one that everybody, the, the people feel most comfortable with is that original search and seizure of the home when the police officers came in. Yes. But that does also make it slightly confusing because he's... Uh, bringing a claim of malicious prosecution, Mm -hmm. which typically, and based on the name, is brought against a prosecutor. Mm -hmm. But he's bringing it against police officers. Yes. Which is already part of the problem. So this argument got very convoluted right off the bat because there are a lot of questions about what exactly are you looking for from us, the Supreme Court? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think... All the justices were kind of annoyed throughout the argument. Definitely a little more combative with all of the advocates. And uh, the, the question became not as simple because, and, and then maybe you can, I mean, I don't know, but there's what they were referring to an upstream problem mm-hmm. and a downstream problem. Right. So the downstream problem is the direct question in front of the court, which is essentially just focusing on this idea of do you need to affirmatively show innocence or is the fact that the prosecutor dropped the charges enough to bring this sort of claim? Uh, that was the court. That was the question before the court because essentially when the prosecutor drops the charges, that's not necessarily saying you're innocent. And that was made very clear by Breyer's that's hypothetical. A, that's favorable termination? Yes. And that was Justice Breyer's argument. Uh, so common law courts really did. Uh, I stole this bread to feed my starving children. And the DA says, okay, okay, I understand. Unlike, etc. I won't prosecute you. Uh, you say, oh, good, wonderful. We now have a, uh, 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 a malicious prosecution claim, right? So, Your Honor, common law courts carefully guarded the technical favorable termination prerequisite. And they understood that what Your Honor just described very much might doom. I'll direct you to Clark v. Cleveland, which is really kind of the canonical case by the New York Court of Appeals. It recognized that certain compromises or forms of uh, mercy may be, I think the word it used, insurmountable when it comes time to actually prove that there was an absence of probable cause, but they did not no, conflate it. I stole the bread. I mean, it's Jean Valjean. I stole it. <laughs> and, 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 uh, 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 yeah, to feed my starving children. I'm just saying, uh, your, your view is, yep, 
There is a malicious prosecution claim. This is great. And, well, I know four lawyers who will bring it, and there we are. And well, so next time, that DA doesn't give in to that argument. Well, remember, Your Honor, everyone here agrees that Petitioner's going to have to prove his claim. He still has to prove the absence of probable cause. He has to prove causation, and he has to overcome, had it not been asserted, the defense of qualified immunity. Briar's always so funny. Anyway. Right. But the point is, so clearly they're not innocent, but the terms that people would normally associate with innocence. So he did the crime, so you don't want to call him innocent. So he's not uh, affirmatively indicating innocence that is written into the statute, but the manner in which the prosecution ended of dropping the charges, is that enough that you could bring this sort of tort against the prosecution for... You know, in, in Thompson's case, bringing these charges that were not really founded. Right. So that's, that's so Thompson saying favorable termination mm-hmm. includes the John Valjean case. Right. Whereas the uh, Clark is basically saying no, favorable termination include like, it's not favorable termination. It's any uh, end state to that litigation that indicates innocence. So anything that's uh, like a true acquittal or some sort of dismissal of claims that is based on a lack of evidence, things like that. So that's the downstream problem. What's the upstream problem? The upstream problem is based more closely around the Fourth Amendment. Right. So isn't that the, that's when, uh, can you even have a malicious prosecution claim within the confines of the Fourth Amendment? Right. Search and seizure aspect. Right. Because the prosecutor is not the one doing the search or the seizure, mm-hmm. which is where that second seizure becomes a problem. The second seizure being, hey, you're subject to the criminal justice system when you shouldn't have been. Is that a seizure? Waters become very murky. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think Thompson's basically saying you don't have to decide whether it's whether that's possible or not. Right. So Thompson is very much on board with just looking at the question of the innocence. He's saying this should have never been brought against me the claims were dropped the prosecutor's claims were dropped or charges sorry were dropped because they had nothing against me because this whole time i was innocent and so therefore i can bring this sort of claim i think it was also like the pre-process the the seizure happened pre-process pre that fi- that that claim was filed by the prosecutor mm-hmm. so that even muddies the water further so i think alito has this great well it's, a, it's almost like a briar moment where he's like, you're going to think I'm crazy, but have you ever heard of a centaur? Well, uh, this is going to be a serious question, although it's going to sound fanciful. Um, let's say someone is questioning a medical expert, an expert on lung cancer. And the question is, um, doctor, um, I'm going to ask you a question about a centaur, which is a creature... It has the upper body of a human being and the lower body and the legs of a horse. And what I want to know is if a centaur smokes five packs of cigarettes every day for 30 years, does the centaur run the risk of getting lung cancer? What would the medical experts say to that? I think he'd say that's, that's a fanciful question that I, I can't answer. I think that's not this case for a couple of reasons, Your Honor. I think well, because... Is, well, what, what should I do if I think there is no such thing as a Fourth Amendment malicious prosecution claim? I, I've, well, assume that it exists. 
assume that there is a centaur and the centaur is out in the woods smoking cigarettes like crazy. So I don't think petitioner is asserting, we don't read petitioner to be asserting in this court, a, militia, a standalone right against malicious prosecution. We understand and it's baked into the question presented. Petitioner to be asserting a unreasonable seizure pursuant to legal process, just as the court recognized in Manuel. The malicious prosecution, the relevance of the tort here is not in defining the constitutional violation, but in looking to as the starting point for defining this claim for damages under section 1983. And yeah, that was... I have to say, for Alito, a very briar moment because even the poor advocate was like, I don't know how to answer that this. That is fanciful. You are right, sir. Thanks for this great question. Yeah. Uh, the, the, Alito's point is, how can, how can we determine anything if there's not even a foundation for this? Right. If this thing doesn't exist for us to even look into how can we answer the question that you're asking when we don't have the the basis of the the mm-hmm. answer. Mm-hmm. So Thompson's attorney, um, is it Ali? Mm-hmm. Yeah, came back and kind of, and the this is like the perfect rebuttal in yes. my mind. Yeah. This is like, hey, th- there were a lot of questions here and I want to make it very simple for you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Just uh, two quick points. First, uh, I think given that I answered questions from a lot of directions initially, it'd be helpful to just be clear about what we think the court needs to hold. We think the court granted this case to decide a deep and pointed conflict uh, between the federal circuits. And all the court needs to say is something like this. The Second Circuit decided this case on the basis that the favorable termination rule we have applied to certain Section 1983 claims requires indications of innocence. It does not. A criminal proceeding terminates in favor of the accused when it ends and the prosecution has failed to obtain a conviction. That's the thrust of it. That's three sentences, two if you like semicolons. Favorable termination Mm -hmm. is not limited to an absolute showing of that person's innocence. It just is favorable termination. Was the claim dismissed for this for for this plaintiff? Done. That's all he's looking for. So, what do you think is going to happen? Um, I say the court leans toward Clark. You're going for Clark? Yeah. Why? I'm not happy about it, but I think honestly. The way that Thompson brought the argument was not super persuasive. I understand the technicalities of his argument, but it's such a confusing way to come at it. I don't think any of the justices are on board for promoting any of the stuff that he's doing, really. Like, there might be some common law, there might be some um, circuit support I think they're basically going to look at a way to just shut this whole thing down and be like, all right, we heard your arguments. We're going to take the narrowest route possible, which I honestly don't think is even answering the question that Thompson put forth. So I think Clark wins, but I don't think the advocates for Clark are going to get anything out of it. I don't think that they're going to gain anything. I think that Thompson's not going to gain anything. I think this is a lose-lose sort of argument where the court's going to find any means possible just to shut down everybody's argument and just get rid of this case. I think it's, um, I think you're right. Malicious prosecution, you're not going to find that. No. 
I think Fourth you, Amendment. Fourth Amendment violation, absolutely. But he didn't absolutely. bring that in the right way. He didn't bring it in the right way, and they're going to remand it for further stuff. Yeah. But I think Thompson's going to end up winning. Okay. I'm on the opposite side. I think Thompson's going to end up winning. But again, kind of like you're saying, on very narrow grounds. Like, they're going to find that uh, it's not limited to cases where innocence is shown. And I think that's how the circuit is leaning right now. I think that's, yeah, I think that's how they're going to show it. Great. Well, with that, we will take a short break, and then we'll come back with trivia and our second case. I mean, it's Jean Valjean. I stole it. <laughs> and, 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 uh, 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 yeah, to feed my starving children. And it hasn't, in my wonderful example of Jean Valjean, just hasn't turned up once. Doctor, um, I'm going to ask you a question about the centaur, which is a creature that has the upper body of a human being and the lower body and the legs of a horse. And what I want to know is if a centaur smokes five packs of cigarettes every day for 30 years, does the centaur run the risk of getting lung cancer? Assume that there is a centaur and the centaur is out in the woods smoking cigarettes like crazy. And we're back. I'm back. All right. So I only have a quick trivia for you today, Bill. Well, good, because last week was damaging to my reputation. It was pretty bad. And this week's question comes uh, courtesy of my stepdad, who gave you a lot of uh, grief about how terrible you were last week. It was (laughs) well-deserved. All right. So this one might be a little bit easier for you. Can you tell me who... 139. Which president nominated the most justices to the Supreme Court? Oh. Why not? Trump did three. There's more than that, though. Oh, obviously it would be the first, so George Washington. There he is. (laughs) Took me a second. (laughs) He's back on his game. Not really. Took me a second. Yes. So George Washington, can you guess how many he appointed? Was it six? No, it was six to start out with, and then a lot of people quit. So it's more than six. So I'm going to guess it nine? Mm-mm. More? Mm-hmm. Twelve? Fourteen. Wow. Fourteen justices. Yeah, so he must have had a lot of quitters. Yeah. Eh, it's the beginning of the court. Yeah, John Jay, I know, was like one of the first to quit. Well, yeah. He's chief. He was. That's right. He's like, this is a dumb institution. Why would I want this? I quit. That's too bad. But George Washington, so he appointed 14 justices. The runner-up is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Which, which makes sense because he had four terms as a president. Well, yes, he had a lot of time. And can you guess how many he had? Six? Nine. Really? Yes. I didn't know it was a whole nine. Okay. Scorpions, great book. You should definitely read it. Uh, you keep telling me to read it, but I never do. It's very, very good. He appointed nine. Um, third runner-up is Andrew Jackson. And then uh, William Howard Taft. Appointed, mm. Both of them appointed six. Uh, but most frequently among the presidents, the number of nominations is typically what do you think? 
I would say it's two or three in two. modern times, too. Two. Yeah. yeah, two is the most common. Washington had the most. So until we get another president who um, gets to reelect the entire Supreme Court and then maybe add a couple more in for people who quit, he's probably always going to be number one. Sounds like a designated survivor type situation. Unless we get more seats, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't seem like anyone's going to beat 14. Mm-hmm. But that's it. Huh? But if you want to learn more about Washington and his first bench, go to Wikipedia. Can go to our website. Oh, that too. Go to the website and check out our trivia. Yeah. But that's all I have to say about that. It was a nice short one. Well, I'm glad you gave me an easy one this week. But that means we can move on to our next case, which is U.S. versus Sarnayev. Sarnayev. I can't say it. I'm so sorry. And I might be mispronouncing it, but. This is about roughly how the chief pronounces it. Exactly. So I'll do it the same way. Perfect. So, so you can give us the facts of the case? Yes. So back in 2013, I think everybody remembers the Boston Marathon bombing case. So this is two brothers, Tamerlan and uh, uh, Jokar Tsarnaev. They were uh, Chechen Muslim immigrants. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know... 20s-ish. They're in their 20s. Jokar is the younger brother, and he's 20 at the time of the bombing. And uh, they're radicalized through some uh, a myriad of factors, including some Al-Qaeda uh, journals and magazines. And they plan to basically wage jihad on the U.S. And the Boston Marathon was one of their major targets. Uh, Times Square was going to be their next target after that. And they ended up killing three people and injuring hundreds more during the bombing. There was a massive manhunt for these two brothers after the fact. Uh, Tamerlan was uh, shot and injured during a chase. Uh, he was then run over by Jokar on the, like, during, during all of the chaos. Uh, but they captured Jokar. Jokar went on trial. He was convicted. And he was given the death penalty. In any death penalty case, we get questions on what's the validity of that sentence, right? Because we're always very nervous about committing anyone to death, even if it is someone who, uh, who you know, very clearly was convicted and there was, no, there was no dispute that he was one of the people who planned the Boston Marathon bombing, right? So uh, it, got up, it was appealed on the way the jury was selected and the way that evidence was let in. It was appealed to the First Circuit and the First Circuit vacated just the sentence just the death penalty sentence because uh, namely and this the main part of the oral argument was uh, whether or not evidence should have been excluded about Tamerlan the older brother who was run over by Jokar uh, Tamerlan's uh, involvement in a triple murder in the Boston area uh, which we'll refer to as the Waltham murders two years prior to the uh, to the actual uh, marathon bombing um that was essential to his defense so the defense they used for these uh for the sentencing was jokar was not the main planner of all of this right he wasn't he wasn't the the head guy he was just kind of following tamerlan's lead uh you know the family hierarchy was tamerlan was the older brother he was the one who's radicalizing jokar jokar was just following his lead and uh following tamerlan's commitment to jihad uh, the the defense was Tamerlan exhibited his commitment to jihad 
by a triple murder of three, you know, even including a friend of Tamerlan's because they were not, you know, they didn't follow their, they didn't live up to Jokar and Tamerlan's belief. Tamerlan's. Tamerlan's. Yeah. I mean, you know, they both believed. They're both. Well, the defense is specifically that it was mostly Tamerlan. Right. Right. Tamerlan's exhibiting this commitment to the jihadist cause. Jokar is just following along. Therefore, Jokar is saying, hey, I was just, you know, a pawn in his game. Yeah, I was a big part of it, but I shouldn't be given, therefore, I shouldn't be given the death penalty. I wasn't the one who orchestrated all this. Uh, The court's saying that that evidence of Tamerlan perhaps being allowed, being the perpetrator of that triple murder, uh, the First Circuit thinks that should have been let in. The district court's like, no, that shouldn't have been let in. There's not enough evidence to suggest that's actually what happened. So that's the uh, the question for the Supreme Court is should that evidence have been let into the First Circuit air in vacating the death sentence, uh, and um, did it air in the exclusion of that evidence? Right, and also the the second part of that is whether or not because the appellate court also found that the jurors were not properly. Question what, during voir dire. Voir dire. Yeah. So that so that like there was regarding the media coverage. Yeah. So they're saying that they the question wasn't asked or properly. Or it properly wasn't. Asked. It wasn't sufficiently. About the media, how much media coverage did you see? Yeah, right. And what media coverage did you see? And how did you feel about it? And all that kind of stuff. Right. And that's it. So they vacated that death sentence because of these these two reasons. The they felt that the jurors were not properly voir dired, and they felt that the sentencing judge should not have excluded the evidence uh, regarding Tamerlan's possible involvement in a triple homicide. Yes. It was a heated argument. Mm-hmm. It was heated. Um... Right. We have three justices that we know very, very well are against the death penalty because they have constantly come out against it, and that's going to be. Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. So they're going to attack this any way they can. Right. And that's because every time they get a death penalty case, they usually write something. Maybe not Kagan so much, but Sotomayor and Breyer are always very vocal. I was trying to be very deft about that. I didn't want to like paint them into a box, but yeah. They're, if they're going to sign on to anything death penalty related, they're going to give it a full work, work over. Yeah. And usually there's still going to be a lot of history and background of the death penalty and how they don't approve of it. Uh, holistically, but that it may be in certain cases it's legal, but they still have a lot of withholdings about the implementation of the death penalty to begin with. And they were very vocal the whole time about having the death penalty in this case. Most of their argument, so from those three justices, focused on the the evidence that was excluded from the sentencing hearing regarding the triple homicide. And that was an interesting question because at a sentencing hearing, you don't get the same rules of evidence that you would get at a regular trial hearing. Right. So this is regular, just a trial. The federal rules of evidence would never have let anything in about Tamerlan's potential involvement in this triple homicide. Right. Not at all. It's like, we're not talking about that crime. We're talking about another crime. Not getting it. But when it comes to sentencing, especially in a death penalty case, the rules are looser. Mm-hmm. Other things can get in, especially when it comes to mitigating circumstances. Mitigating circumstances being, hey, this is the reason I shouldn't be put to death. It's actually this, and you're not putting you're not putting it into evidence to show, yeah, Tamerlan killed three people. You're putting it into evidence to show that, hey, the state of mind of this person 
that we're about, we're, we might sentence to death is X or Y. Right. And when it comes to mitigating factors, that's where it falls into the Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual punishment. You want to give a defendant the opportunity to present a defense of why they should not be put to death for the crime committed. And so a lot of the argument, um, especially from those three justices, revolved around Joe Carr's ability to even present a defense. The entire point of the defendant's mitigation case was that he was, you know, dominated by, uh, unduly influenced by his older brother. And that would have gone to exactly that point. Is, is that right? Your Honor, if you have the knowledge combined with the strong evidence, I think that might have might well have done it, particularly if it could have been done in a streamlined fashion. But if you look at pages okay, 668 so to 669... True, if that's true, Mr. Fagan, yeah. then uh, your entire case rests on the notion that this evidence just wasn't strong enough, that it was too, I don't know what else to call it. It, it, it didn't establish that Tamerlan had uh, played a leading role in the Waltham murders. That's what your case is. But how is that the job of a district court to uh, evaluate, much less decide, that question. I would have thought that once the district court says this is obviously related to his uh, sentencing defense, in other words, it goes to his own culpability, it essentially confirms, if it were true, the mitigating factor that he was unduly influenced by his brother. At that point, it's the job of the jury, isn't it, to decide on the reliability of the evidence, to decide whether it's strong evidence or weak evidence, that Tamerlan, in fact, played a leading role in those other gruesome murders? And so since he was denied, essentially, the ability to present this specific defense, it seems almost like an infringement of his Eighth Amendment right. Well, I think I, I don't. I didn't read it that way. I read it. He was able to present that defense, but this was a key part of that defense. Well, right. He was able to present other defenses, but no, this... no, that defense. He was able to present that defense. There's other pieces of evidence that went towards that, but this was a crucial portion of that evidence. So the majority of his defense being his brother was manipulative and. Uh, aggressive i guess you would say so they had evidence of him like shouting at his religious proceedings they had uh, evidence of him poking K- people kagan listed it off there's a bunch of things right. that let in but like minor things that people do when they're frustrated essentially mm-hmm. but this would be a big one like oh right. also my brother may have been involved in killing three people and he might have been the ringleader of it so he has practice of putting together these sorts of large idea crimes. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty big piece of evidence. And so that's where these three justices are coming at it. Like, that could have been persuasive to jurors as, hey, my brother may have been involved with a triple homicide where he killed his best friend because it was going to benefit him in his um, you know, pursuit of jihad. And so... That would be good evidence. But the fact that the court didn't allow this evidence in did not allow the jurors to even hear it. And then therefore he was denied this specific defense. Counsel, this is a constitutional right to present mitigating evidence. 
It seems to me that I'm not sure um, how we would ever have an abuse of discretion review of a dis- solely on a district court's decision not to permit a defendant to put on a defense. It, it has to be something else because I don't know of any other situation where you can deny a defendant the constitutional right on a simple weighing. But putting that aside, I'm also unsure what the reliability of this information is about when, although you're saying that they wouldn't have put in the evidence that the defendant knew about this killing, there were multiple people who they proffer to us now who could have testified to the fact that this defendant knew his brother had committed these killings as she hopped, which would have meant the truthfulness of the confidential informant was irrelevant because it doesn't really matter who took the lead in the killing or even if the brother participated in the killing. The only issue would have been what the defendant think. And so I'm not sure whether the relevancy issue that the district court ruled on made any sense to me. But please explain to me how we, what would, what should be the standard of review assuming a constitutional right to present mitigating evidence and assuming as Justice Kagan showed, this evidence was relevant to to how this young brother might have reacted to the entreaties of an older brother who had already committed jihad. Well, Your Honor, the Court of Appeals expressly found that abuse of discretion review was the appropriate standard of review, and respondent hasn't taken issue with that in this court. And as to the um, point about knowledge, if you look at page 976 of the joint appendix, you will see that the government's motion in limine said that respondent had not asserted that he knew about the Waltham crime, and we acknowledged it would be a different story if he had. In response, on page 669 of the joint appendix, he says that the evidence should come in even assuming arguendo he didn't know about it. And that's the basis on which the district court decided to exclude the evidence. In other cases, when evidence is going, when the court in its discretion feels that the evidence is going to confuse and and overtly prejudice uh, the ruling, it's going to confuse the jury about what's going on, almost creating a mini trial within the overall trial. They've got to almost prove that, hey, yeah, uh, Tamerlan did kill or did not kill three people. Um, it becomes confusing to the jury, and it becomes it, it dilutes the overall process on yes in this in this case the sentencing hearing. Right, and that seems to be where the other justices landed, which was the court had the discretion. You know, the district court in this case had the discretion to refuse to admit this evidence because it could have been confusing to the jury. Um, because all of this evidence is based on an affidavit from someone who was involved in the triple homicide who presented this affidavit after Tamerlan had already died. Yep. So it would have been in this person's favor to be like, oh yeah, it was him. It was his idea. Tamerlan was in charge of all of this. 
He yeah. orchestrated the whole thing. I was just there. Yeah, the credibility of the affidavit was definitely in question. Right. And so if you're going to present this evidence specifically to show that Tamerlan has a tendency to be a ringleader of these types of criminal activity, the court has a reason to question it. But that's where, again, Kagan, Sotomayor were, you know, bringing in this idea of, I get that credibility, big problem, but isn't that up to the jury to determine? Whether or not this type of evidence is credible should be before the jury. They should still get the opportunity to hear it and, that's and the, then weigh whether or not this evidence is credible and whether or not this would weigh in favor of um, Jokar being susceptible to this type of persuasion. And that's where the government has their final argument of the harmless error rule. It's in some ways easy to view all this from an appellate remove, which is what we're doing here. But the easiest way to resolve this case is simply on harmless error principles and think about what the jury actually heard. I don't think this comes through as much in the briefs as if the court takes a little bit of time. It'll only take a little bit of time to review some of the video evidence that's included in the joint appendix. I'd particularly recommend exhibits 22, 23, and 1304C. And what those exhibits show, I've already gone through some of the evidence about respondent being involved in the planning of the offense. But what those exhibits are going to show is respondent physically separating from his brother near the finish line of the Boston Marathon, positioning himself behind a group of children, putting down his backpack. We can't really quite see that part, but rest assured that he did it. Putting down his backpack contemplating for about three minutes, taking out his phone and calling his brother, after which the first bomb goes off. So Tamerlan's clearly waiting for a signal from respondent. Respondent, then while everyone in the forum restaurant patio is panicking and wondering what just happened, actually they don't even know enough to panic yet, Respondent walks off at a normal rate of speed. It's not a very wide-angle camera on the forum patio, so uh, he barely gets off screen before 20 seconds later, the second bomb explodes, killing and maiming people that were minutes ago, uh, seconds ago, I'm sorry, wondering what had just happened. If that's not someone who set off the bomb himself, or at least knew exactly when it was going to go off and what its blast radius was going to be, I don't know what is. Then after the bombing, respondent who lives 60 miles away from Tamerlan joins up with Tamerlan for a daring escape in which they kill a police officer in cold blood in a failed attempt to steal his firearm. They carjack and kidnap an innocent graduate student, and then they engage in a violent shootout with police officers in Watertown, during which respondent is lighting pipe bombs and throwing them at the police. Then, when Tamerlan rushes the police, respondent gets back in the stolen SUV, and instead of just driving away, he does a three-point turn, he comes back at the confrontation, the police officers get managed to get out of the way, but he runs over Tamerlan. He then destroys his phone so that he can't be located and hides out in 
the, someone's backyard in a boat where he writes a manifesto justifying his jihadist acts. That's all the evidence that the jury heard that was admissible evidence that came in in this case. And the jury's nuanced verdict in this case was based on that evidence, not anything about pretrial publicity or anything about Waltham. Thank you. They're saying there's no way they would have chosen something different than the death penalty. Right. Which is a separate argument argued in the briefs. They didn't really talk about it all that much. It was kind of like their, their lowest fallback position. It's like, hey, like this is a Boston jury. And you just blew up the marathon. There's no way they weren't going to sentence him to death. And based on all of the evidence, other evidence that was presented, yeah, um, this one mitigating factor wouldn't have made... Wouldn't have tipped the scales. Right. It wouldn't have changed the minds of the jurors. And that's the, the prejudice factor. And I get that too. Um, but I guess before the Supreme Court is really just focused on whether or not the court erred in the first place. Yeah. And well, the question that I don't think is before the court but is a really interesting question is the jury four person in this case was actually caught all right like his they found like his social media posts from back at, during the bombing period of time it was like finally like they finally got the sob that did this right well that's where i guess more of the juror wadering is probably right and i don't know if that specifically is in front of the court but yeah. it doesn't seem like it because they never no, brought that up they never brought that up but it's yeah. so that goes back to the first question do you think that the first circuit aired in their really strict confines of this question of whether or not the jurors were properly questioned about media coverage because i mean my understanding from the uh the advocate for the state was it was part of their voir dire questioning. It was question number 77 or something. Mm -hmm. Specifically asked them, have you seen media coverage of this incident? Um, and they did have a couple of questions alluding to what they had seen on TV. And obviously at that point they had seen everything. Like everyone had seen everybody, everything. Everyone knew a little bit of what had happened. Yeah. So they had some questioning on it. But I guess what the federal court wanted was a more in-depth questioning of what they had seen and how they portrayed it. Because, I mean, everyone sees the coverage differently depending on what news broadcast you subscribe to and, you know, what interviews you might have seen on TV. So one of the questions that came up by the justices was about if you saw, you know, a victim testimony on the news and that hit you really hard and you're, like, forever scarred from it. And then you write that on your juror voir dire, maybe you're not the right person to be on this jury because mm -hmm. you already mentioned that you're scarred from this testimony. Clearly, you're going to have some preconceptions going into that trial. I certainly didn't feel like anybody answered the question of how much authority does an appellate court have. To and then I think that's because we don't have a rule on that yet. Yeah. Like, and then, like they said, they called it the um, supervisory, supervisor, supervisory rule. Where Tom, was it Thomas who said that? that what, what does that mean? What, what rule? There is no rule. Yeah. Like, well, because again, it's mostly precedent. Yes. So even um, you cannot uh, exclude jurors now based on their race or their gender. Right. That's just a rule. But that's really set through precedent 
It's yeah. called a rule, but it, it's set through case law and precedent. And so calling something a supervisory rule doesn't necessarily make it any different than precedent. That's that's what it is. But right now, there really isn't as much precedent about <laughs> excluding jurors based on how much media coverage they have. Yeah. There's some, but not to this intense level of like, I need to know exactly what you watched and how it affected you. Because that would take too long to actually start the trial. Yeah. What do you think in the end? How is the court going to rule on these two questions about jury selection or, sorry, the appellate court's ability to review jury selection based on media coverage and then the um, introduction of evidence for that strange scenario of his brother as a mitigating factor? Well... I know how Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan are ruling. They're just like, no, none of this was done correctly. <laughs> that's my that's my guess with them anyway. Um, I think Thomas is going to rule on purely procedural grounds. Like, where's the First Circuit's authority for this? I'm remanded. I would remand to the First Circuit for them to determine where their authority even comes from um, for any of this. Or say that they don't have it. Yeah, or say they don't have it. My gut says that all the other justices are going to say hey it was within the jury it was in within the district court's discretion to exclude that testimony because it was so unrelated well not unrelated but because it was so um unverifiable it was going to confuse the uh, the jury i think it was within their discretion and they didn't clearly abuse that discretion by letting it out um i also think it's not a clear abuse of the voir dire process because they questioned them about media coverage. Could they have questioned them more? Could they have questioned them more? Okay, how many questions is enough? What's the right question? Like, yeah, sure, everybody would have had a different voir dire process or question for that, but where's the line? And I didn't hear any of the discussion on that either. Mm-hmm. So if I had to guess, I think it's going to be a close decision, but I think it's going to go in favor of the government. Now, on a, if I was going to rule... I would, if I was going to rule. I always love your rulings. Hmm? I always love your rulings. And they're always fake, and they're not based on much law. But <laughs> the my ruling would be, look, this is clearly, it's a high-profile case. It's been tainted by um, a number of things, right? Uh, and I got, and I'm, I'm kind of stealing this from this article I read by uh, Jeffrey Abramson, who's a professor at the University of Texas. His line is like, look, we should be better than him. We should be better than Joe Carr. Our system of government, we have to be sure that this is the guy. This is, and we're going to pen, and we're going to penalize him with death. And there's no question over whether um, he deserves it. We've gone through all the mitigating factors, and yeah, he still deserves the death penalty. Let's not do shortcuts around this. Let's do it the right way because that's our system, and that's why we're better than him. And he hated our system. But he still get even though he hated our system, he gets to benefit from our system. So that's like if I had to make a policy based decision on this, like that's what I would do. Wait, where, you, where does that land you? Sends it back to the uh, to the first circuit to basically remand back to the district court for a new sentencing hearing, oh. which would allow for inclusion of the, all mitigating factors, including the allegation that Tamerlan was the ringleader of the triple homicide then being okay well maybe they'll have to show that Jokar 
truly believed that Tamerlan was this, I don't know, jihadist leader figure. But that was a lot. So in summary, I think um, Briar, Kagan, Sotomayor are going to say, are going to side with the First Circuit. I think Thomas is going is going to side with the government on procedural grounds. And I think the rest of them are going to say, hey, this is at least harmless error. What about you? I suppose I agree. Um, the f- second question regarding the evidence, I think, is going to be a 6-3 decision, essentially. It seems like most of the court thinks that the district court had proper discretion to exclude this evidence because it w- could have been confusing. And it really it was on these strange nobody really knew what happened that night there's an affidavit that says what happened that night but again the circumstances behind the affidavit go very much in the favor of the person who wrote the affidavit so i can understand the majority of the court saying that the court had discretion Mm -hmm. to not let this evidence in kagan Sotomayor, Breyer, I very much believe they're going to dig their heels in the idea that the court should have discretion in what's going to be clearly irrelevant evidence, but if it is relevant evidence, it should be up to the jury to determine the weight of such evidence. As to the, the media coverage of the jurors, I find that question a little bit more interesting just because today how (laughs) which jurors aren't going to see it yes and that is and it's part of what happened during the argument and the testimony as well was look all the jurors saw something and so when we put our questions out there we weren't going to make them hyper specific because we knew everyone saw something Mm -hmm. it's essentially who saw the most we need to get out of there who saw the least, I guess. Who had the most visceral reactions to Right, to but otherwise, yeah. everyone saw something. Yeah. But it's so hard nowadays to have a fair and unbiased trial in your community by a jury of your peers mm-hmm. when the media is so everywhere. It's yep. omnipresent. And so it, it made me think a little bit about the likely upcoming case of Gabby Petito. Yeah, and oh gosh, what's uh, what's her and her boyfriend? Yeah, what's his name? He's um, Brian Laundry. Right, the Laundries. So I have been hearing about this case constantly. It's all over the media since she went missing. Since he came home, essentially, since he came back and did not bring her back, it's been everywhere. And the media coverage is not kind ever. I mean, if you've ever seen Gone Girl, I made you watch Gone Girl. Yes. The idea that the media has been on this case since before yeah. this case even became really a case. Yes, she was announced missing and it was like that day that the media yeah. coverage started. How are you going to find, your question being, how are you going to find Brian Laundry's jurors? Right. Because from that day forward, everybody's eyes were on him. And so from that moment, and, you know, circumstances are not always great. So he comes back, his girlfriend doesn't come back. She's missing, and then she's found dead. Obviously, everyone in the media is now questioning this guy. Yeah. But that's not 
their job like that's the yeah. jury's job yeah. and so when you start that questioning process way before you even get into the jurors box it becomes really difficult to separate that and so that's the question that i find most interesting i feel like the court is not going to delve into that at this point but that's exactly what happened here was everybody in america was watching this case i mean when they found jokar in the boat that day like 90% of New England was glued to the TV watching the whole chase the whole time. And so when yeah. they found him, they already made their decision on what to do with him. Yep. And so then you put them in a juror box and you say, hey, can you be... Impartial? Impartial? No. You can't. No. But, you can try, but... But what do you do about that nowadays? This is not the juries of, you know, 1780. Where you, you're hearing about the events the first time in the juror box right exactly and most juries are gonna be like that like some rando from a county away or several towns away is accused of murder and you've never heard of these people before and you've never you might know you might know the area where it happened but you don't know anything like a lot of juries on smaller state level cases well yeah but even still now because Again, social media and everything is just constantly on you. Like, I get updates to my watch of what's happening everywhere all the time. It, you don't really get that much anymore. Even if it is a small case, like local in your town, you hear about it right away. It could be you on Twitter. About like, someone's yeah. missing, what boyfriend all, all suspect. I'm, all I'm trying to say is that there's a spectrum. And as the case becomes more publicized, the less it is likely you're going to find an impartial jury. Right. And the O.J. Simpson was probably the the start of this. Yeah. This whole presence, the omnipresence of the media. But today... Yeah, where the media realized they could make a lot of money on publicizing. Right. But because crime, of that, yeah. it's so hard to escape it. Like, if you put the news on, you're going to hear about every criminal activity in your local area. And then mm -hmm. if you get called to a jury... How do you be an impartial peer when you already know... Oh, it becomes a real problem when you think about the right of a jury trial. Yes. To every American. Yes. Because it essentially robs you of the right to a jury trial. Because you're already tried on yep. TV constantly for like 24 yep. hours a day. And that's what I find more interesting, but I don't think they're going to actually answer that question no, here. Won't. But I think you're right. I think it's going to be a majority court is going to be in favor of the U.S. state. And um, essentially, they're probably going to give him back his uh, death sentence. They're going to overturn the appellate court's ruling and reinstate. Yes, I think that's what they're going to do. Yeah, but in Justice Barrett summed it up pretty succinctly. Why does this even matter? Mr. Fagan, I'm wondering what the government's end game is here. So the government has declared a moratorium on executions, but you're here defending his death sentences. And if you win, presumably that means that he is relegated to living under the threat of a death sentence that the government doesn't plan to carry out. So I'm just having trouble following the point. Well, Your Honor, um, the administration continues to believe the jury imposed a sound verdict and that the Court of Appeals was uh, wrong. 
to upset that verdict. If the verdict were to be reinstated eventually, which will require some further proceedings on remand, there'd then be a round of collateral review, some time for um, reviewing any clemency petitions. Within that time, uh, the Attorney General presumably can review the matters that are currently under review, such as the current ex- execution protocol. And um, what we are asking here is that the sound judgment of 12 of respondents' peers that he warrants capital punishment for his personal acts in murdering and maiming uh, scores of innocents, and along with his brother, hundreds of innocents at the finish line of the Boston Marathon should be respected. Exactly. And so in the end, does it even matter? Well, yes. Yes, it does, Justice Barrett, because the rule of law, we still need to answer these questions. But you have a good point. He's probably never going to get put to death anyway. Thanks for bringing it up. Honestly, in four or eight years when 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 the other party takes control of the White House. But that's... I guess we'll... Review next week and uh, tune in again on uh, next weekend. Yep. And don't forget to uh, follow us on the Instagrams and email us and stuff because we don't do the show live. So you just got to send your questions into modiscotus at gmail.com. Like and subscribe and comment. and Yeah. All that, all that good stuff. Bye. <laughs> Have a good week. Tune in next week.